The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty Father in heaven, I am about to preach a sermon and you, would you please preach to my heart that the words that we have just sung in these three magnificent songs is that, that they're really true. That we everything we just sang is, is, is real. It's not just church talk. I I, I need to hear that sermon. So would you preach it to me? Would you preach it to all of us? Now, would you let that sermon keep ringing in our hearts an hour from now and two hours from now and tomorrow morning when the kids go back to school and we're back at work and, and the in the doldrums of, of January in Utah, would you, would you preach that to us? Glorious words. I, th- I thank you that you've given us other brothers and sisters who have, who have seen these truths and put pen to paper and created songs. That, thank you for, for Nate and his ministry of song selection among other ministries and just bringing these truths before us. Just delightful. As we look at your word this morning, would you please help our faith? Help our faith in particular ways. Please remove the the roadblocks. Please remove the the things that we place before ourselves. And please, please change us. Please change us so that we would respond to the, the, the trials and the troubles of life in, in, in such a way that we, we would find true comfort. It is there. It is true. It is real. Your Word says so, but so often we don't find it. Would you cause that to happen? Would you cause us to really find true comfort, true confident rest, in the hurricanes of life. And I feel great confidence in praying this because you've promised to do it. So would you? So would you work through your word? Would you cause your word to to go and work? Would you control this moment? Would you control my words? Would you control my attitude, my face, my countenance, my the tone of my voice, would you control the, the way I say what I say? Would you control how we hear? Would you control the, the memory banks of our minds and open folders and cause new file folders to be created that we might learn and grow and change? We need you, as this sister said in Sunday school this morning. We, we come here this morning starting 2015. We're we're just sinners, and we need a Savior, and you are our Savior, and you are strong, and you will do it. So we look to you now to do it, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, and Happy New Year. <clears throat> and you are visiting with us this morning. I also want to say welcome and let you know that uh, my name is Jed. I'm the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor, Steve Clark, will be back next Sunday. Um, Please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms. We look at Psalm 94 this morning, Psalm 94. As I'm sure you know from reading the book of Psalms, the the book of Psalms is a book containing books. The, The Psalms have been organized into books. They were arranged over time into five books, and we we find ourselves right at the beginning this morning of the fourth book, which begins with Psalm 
90. Psalms 90 through 99 have a theme to them, the theocracy of God. We Americans, we live in an ever-changing democracy, a government by the people, for the people. Some people live under monarchies with a king or a queen. Some live really under anarchy. If you live in Russia, you live under an oligarchy, I guess is how you pronounce it, where a group of big men wield power over you. Regardless, whatever kind of government you live under, this, these group of psalms, they proclaim that it all exists under a ruling, sovereign king, the God of Israel. But this reality has two sides to it, as we, we just read from Psalm 93. Um, Psalm 93 says in verse 1 that the psalmist, or God, reigns over all and the, the earth is established. It will never be moved, what he says. Verse 2 says that God's kingship is eternal. It is unchanging. And yet, look around. Read any day's headlines. Do a Google search for, let's say, Boko Haram. <laughs> and what do you find? You find verse 3. The floods have lifted up. The floods lift up their roaring. The world is established, but the world is tossed like a vicious storm at sea. We live in a tension between these two realities. The, the world is established by God, never to be moved, but it is storm-tossed. So Psalm 94 does not so much answer the, the, the why of this, this tension, but, but it answers how. how. How do we live in this tension? How do we live fruitfully? Not just getting by, not, not dejected, not always on this or this side of insanity. But, but fruitfully, how do we stand in the face of arrogant evil with, with confident assurance and comfort? Because this storm-tossed world, is, it is so full of wickedness, and, and the wickedness is so arrogant, so arrogant. I mean, you, you only need to listen to that, that guy that leads Boko Haram for a few minutes to say, ah, what, a, what an arrogant fool, what a wicked, arrogant fool. And then, like me, you can look in the mirror and uh, see the same thing too often. This arrogant evil is always coming at us. It is coming at us through three enemies, the world, our own flesh, and the devil. We don't have to look at a screen to find it. We just look in the mirror. And these enemies want nothing less, nothing less than to kill our souls. That's it. So where do we turn? What do we do against enemies that are so much more powerful than us? Well, as we imagine these questions, we start to get a sense of the problem that the psalmist is facing in Psalm 94. So let's, let's look at it together. I'm going to read it in its entirety. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall... Shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, but they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought... My foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. 
When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. The word of the Lord. Featured prominently here is vengeance. Not revenge. Those are two different things. We take revenge. We become enraged and we drop down to the level of the evil done to us and we return it in kind. That's revenge. But the psalmist is actually asking God to rise up, to act and pay back, to give what their evil deeds deserves. And he asks, he asks for this in verses 1 and 2. And then he ends the psalm in verse 23 with, with strong confidence that God will do it. God will wipe them out. Now, if you find this distasteful, not befitting of God, note in verse 1 that the psalmist says that this is part of what makes God God. He is the God of vengeance. The word means to repay, to, to set things right. It has the sense of paying back both positively and negatively. It has the sense both of, 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 of vengeance but, but also of vindication of setting things right. He is asking God to make the world right, to pay back the wicked and vindicate the righteous because God rules His kingdom by His Word. His Word is perfect. And as it says at the end of Psalm 93, holiness befits your house, O Lord. Holiness befits your house. So fix this. Look, look at this, Lord. This does not befit your house. You are king over all. Do something about this, Lord. He is asking God to be Himself, to, to act on His character, to act on His just nature, to deal fairly with all the hellish rebellion going on in His house. Because it's wrong. It should not be. So, if, if you don't like the picture of God taking vengeance, it, it may be because you've never been, and to use the politically correct word, displaced. You've never been driven out of your country violently at night just because your tribe has a certain name and ended up a refugee in some swampy shanty town in another country. You've never experienced that, but it happens all the time. You've never been driven by your country and given a veiled threat. You've never been told, you've got three choices. You can go to the mosque and pray publicly, or you can, I don't remember what the other choice was that this brother told me, or number three, you can, <clears throat> and, and I don't think you want to know what that choice is. <laughs> I don't think you want to know. I don't think you want to go down that road. You've never been given such choices. You've never seen firsthand how evil people crush the weak and how they afflict God's heritage. So I think you can agree with me that it's not right the way the world is. And in the face of everything that is so not right, the psalmist cries out for God to make things right. And God will do this completely one day, verse 23. But until then, we need a path of sanity. We need a path of, of refuge. And more than sanity, the, there's a path laid out for us here, a path of confident assurance, of rest and comfort. Right in the, right in the middle of evil days, so, a sermon like this can sound a little bit like um, a sermon. <laughs> it can sound, you know, easy to preach and impossible to live. Uh, and I, so, I, I don't mean today to preach a what's called a triumphalist sermon. That if you if you get this, then your life will be perfect. That you'll everything will will be just all right. No, we we live in a tension until the Lord returns. But personally, I can see that in my own life, I, I've seen these truths come to life in, in, in my own boiling cauldrons. Not to the extent of the man who's praying this song, but I've seen it. And more often than not, though, I've, I've failed to hold on to these truths. 
But the, the writer of this psalm brings good news for all of us, good news for our sanity, for our comfort, and for our confident assurance to the end. This is what the psalms often do. They, they give us language to, to speak in the middle of the night. They, they give us the language we need to make music at midnight. So I, I'm working on this big point this morning. It is this. The, the steadfast love of our omniscient God draws us to take confident refuge in Him. The steadfast love of our omniscient God draws us to take confident refuge in Him in evil days. The steadfast love of our omniscient God draws us to take confident refuge in Him in evil days. I'm going to unpack this in three points. The first one is, is this. The reality of arrogant intractable evil for Christians. The reality of arrogant, intractable evil for Christians. By intractable evil, I mean the evil that isn't going to change. Now, you can, you can forgive murder, but you can't change the results of murder. You still have to live with that. That person no longer lives. A psalmist is facing wicked rulers, verse 20, who bake injustice right into their laws. God's people are crushed by these leaders. Verse 5, continually afflicted. They do the worst thing to the weakest people. Verses 4 through 6, they kill the, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. The worst of all, the, the thing that really gets the psalmist, the thing that really angers him is that they are so arrogant about it. Yes, they are wicked, but how they exult. Arrogant words just flow out of their boastful mouths. Verse 4, and they arrogantly say, verse 7, the Lord, Yahweh, he, he doesn't see. He doesn't perceive what we're doing. These leaders are not Boko Haram on the other side of the world. They're most likely their own countrymen, the psalmist's own countrymen. They're people who should know better from their own families, from their own towns. The, the, their wickedness is great, but the, the sting of it is in their great arrogance. They exalt themselves over their brothers. So before we go any further, we need to, to stop and see that this is a reality for Christians. The psalmist does not give us the whys here, the, the, the why this is. He doesn't explain that, but it should not surprise us. <clears throat> Sometimes our king calls us to the difficult duty of hearing Habakkuk's news, that invaders are coming, they're going to strip the land bare, and there will be famine, and that's, that's it. That's, that's your lot. That's your post. Sometimes God calls Christians to live under violent injustice for protracted, seemingly unending periods of time. And He does this. He's doing this right now, today. If you don't believe me, just wait to stay in your seat after church, and in will come a group of people who are here for that very reason. Sometimes the night is very long. You should ask them how they've experienced that. You and I then have this instinctive rejection of trouble in response. We, we say, no, 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 no. We, we, we get angry at the injustice of it because it's even happening at all. We become indignant at God that He's allowed this evil to interrupt our otherwise perfect lives. What? what? We're, we're shocked, and we shouldn't be. It's not unusual for Christians to experience evil, protracted, unchanging evil, or short bursts of it even from our closest friends. So it's not unusual, and yet note, note how forthrightly, how, how directly the psalmist addresses God here. He, he keenly feels the problem. God is good and sovereign, and all of this is so not right. Lord. The psalmist, he's, he's not rude to God. He doesn't speak out of place. He sees the problem rightly. And he responds rightly. And he feels it intensely, and so he speaks that way to God. This is sanity. This is what sanity looks like. To see things as they are and to not be shocked by them, but to respond rightly to them. It is insanity to pretend that all is well, that everything's going to be okay, that the sun will come out tomorrow. The psalmist displays an honest, right response of anger here. Lord, this ain't right, and I'm against this. 
But instead of in anger lashing out at the people, he turns to the only person who can do anything about it, his sovereign God. It drives him to prayer. That's sanity. That's, sometimes that's the only path of sanity. And it's the only path of comfort. So are, are you honest with God in prayer? You need to stop first and just ask, ask yourself that. Are you honest with God? I, I don't mean like honest with, well, I, I do mean honest with Him about the things that you do. But I just mean, are you, are you honest with Him about the things that are done to you? Are you honest with Him about how it feels, about your fears, about how you see yourself, about what it's like for that, what that person did to you? Are you honest with Him? Or do you hold back? Do you pretend a little bit? If you do, why is that? I think we'll get, at least in part, to the answer to that question later, but it's good to ask yourself, why is that? Why do you hold back? As the psalmist goes to God in honest prayer, as he speaks to Him, he remembers who this God is, what He promises and what He provides. And the path of sanity and even, even confident, assurant rest in the face of these wicked rulers opens up to him. And it opens up to us. So this brings us to the second point. Point number two. We are blessed with confident assurance as we respond positively and trustingly to God's promises and work. We are blessed with confident assurance as we respond positively and trustingly to God's promises and work. I keep saying confident assurance or something like that because that's the sense of verse 13 and the word rest there. The sense of, I'll read starting in verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. The sense of verse 13 is not exactly the stoppage of trials, and thereby you get rest from that. The sense here is something else, a rest that comes from a confident assurance. It's a rest that transcends circumstance. It's the rest that caused Paul and Silas locked deep and away in a prison in Philippi to make music at midnight. The sense here is not that they would be given a ceasefire in the days of trouble, but that God is out to give this blessed man confidence, a confident assurance in the midst of trouble. The evil days may or may not change, but this man changes. He changes because he is given a gift by God, confident assurance. We don't go out and create this for ourselves. It is given to us by God. God is working sovereignly, arranging all things in the world and in your universe to bring this about in you. All of the details of your ordinary, regular life, God is out to produce. God is out to use to produce this confident assurance in all of His children. This assurance that transcends circumstance. But God blesses us by strange means, verse 12. He, he does this by disciplining us and by teaching us. God gives us this confident assurance that, that transcends circumstance by disciplining and teaching. So you might think of discipline as the angry back of the hand. But the sense here is, again, simply God's ordering of all things, even the evil done to you, to bring this about, to bring about this confident assurance oftentimes to cut away the things that get in the way of this confident assurance in Him. It's the providential ordering of all things to provide us this gift. God does not invent or create evil, but He bounds it and He orders it and He uses it as His scalpel, as the very thing we need. But He also teaches us. And as we listen to God, as we, as we humbly let God tell us what's real, what's true about our situation, we start to distrust our own version of events, and then we actually regain sanity. And as we do that, we actually regain, or perhaps for the first time, gain this confident hope that we never had before. So what does he teach us? 
Well, the psalmist, as he looks at God, is reminded of God's promise, His presence, and His provision. His promise, His presence, and His provision. The promise comes in verses 13, 14, and 15. God will be at work. He will be at this work of giving this confident assurance every day right up until the end when, using very vivid imagery, a pit, a grave is dug for the wicked. I think it's safe to understand that phrase as that it's the wicked who are digging their own pit. So why is God at this work? Because He will not abandon His heritage, that is, His people. Never. Though He may seem to be away, He is not. He will never abandon the righteous. One day, verse 15, justice will boomerang back on the righteous in a good way. They will be vindicated. They will be made whole. And on that day, verse 23, God will boomerang back on the wicked their iniquity. He will wipe them out. And all will be made right. So we are called in the moment of the slap to the cheek to give the other cheek in part because we have this promise. We don't defend ourselves because God will do justice. God will vindicate us. He won't do revenge, but He will do what justice demands. He will do it. We find confident assurance while the the cheek is still stinging in His promises. And we find it in His presence. Look at how the psalmist speaks in verses uh, 8-11. through He speaks here directly to the murderers, to the wicked rulers, and he doesn't return fire for fire, but he does call it like it is. He remembers that God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. And so he is able in the moment to see the truth about the wicked. He is able to see them rightly because he sees God rightly. And the language here is so vivid. Note the the, the tinge of sarcasm here. You, you say the God of Jacob isn't aware of what you're doing? Really? Really? The, the, the one who custom designed your ears? Does he not hear? The one who invented your eyes? Is he blind? Huh. Uh, the, the king over all who can discipline entire nations with the flick of his finger. Is it anything for him to rebuke you? No. The one who, the, the, the God who invented the concept of thought, does, does he not see your thoughts? Does he not know that they're but a breath or no more powerful than, than breathing on someone? Does he not? Of course he does. God sees. God sees. God's promises and his presence allow us to rightly assess those who do evil to us. So we don't answer a fool according to his folly. We don't descend to his level in in evil and murder in return. But we do answer the fool according to his folly in that we call it like it is. Foolishness that God sees and God will deal with justly. When evil is done to us, evil that will not change in this life, we can look at that person and see one digging his own pit. Stand in fear. This is helpful, even vital in the moment to be able to see the other person as they truly are. Digging, digging, digging their own pit. This frees us from taking revenge ourselves and it frees us from sinful anger. But it is cold comfort all by itself. So the psalmist also calls us to take confident assurance in God's provision In verses 16 through 23, he gives us a personal testimony of how God treated him. Wicked rulers, they're they're so much more powerful than me. Who will rise up against them for me? Well, he testifies, if the Lord had not been my help, I would have died, verse 17. But then we see in verses 18 and 19 that there was a different problem, a, a deeper problem. It seems best to understand his words, my foot slips, referring not to the possibility and the, the, the fear of, of death itself, but the, the travail of his soul, the, the, the seepage of faith, the, the slipping, the, the, the frittering away of his faith. It's the, 
the cares of his soul eating away at that faith, even as he faced the possibility of death. There is some solace for, for every pain of the body, some salve. But there are pains of the soul which are deeper, more painful, which nothing on earth can console. But God did, and God does, the psalmist says. He says in verse 20, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. The trajectory of the psalmist's life turned on that moment, on that moment of taking consolation in God's consolations. The trajectory of our lives turn on this kind of moment. When the cares of our hearts are many, where, where do we take consolation? It's a massive question. God in His loving sovereignty is exercising providential control of all things, even the daily events of your life, to bring you to this point so that your soul would find true consolation in the only place where it is found. God is at that work. He actually cares about it more than you do for you. So to be consoled means to receive comfort in the face of a loss or grief that will not change. That can be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job or marriage. It might be more common, more everyday, maybe caused by you, lost time with the kids because of distraction, lost money from mismanagement or overspending. Or perhaps it's something more common even still, like boredom or uselessness or just being left out at school, being different. The trajectory of your life pivots on where you take consolation, where you take refuge. The psalmist says that whatever the cares, God's consolations cheer his soul. It is not a complete setting of all things right, not perfection, not yet. That's still to come. But God's consolations always cheer his soul. So what are these consolations? Well, we don't know precisely how his feet were slipping. We don't know precisely what that, he doesn't tell us. Um, nor does he tell us what God's precise consolation was. He simply calls us to confidently, assuredly turn to God and expect this consolation. The implication here is God will be to you as he was to me. God will be to you as he was to me. If you would turn to him, he will console you and his consolations will cheer your soul. We all live in evil days. So the question is, will you look to God's consolations to cheer your soul? That is the question. Who or what do you turn to? And what are the results? What are the results? So to answer these questions, we need to slow down to use someone else's phrase, we, we need to slow down the, the, the videotape of our lives. If you are young and you even know what videotape is, um, if you slow down the video, just say that, slow down the video, press pause, and just ask, where, where are you turning for consolation, for refuge? In the little moments, where? For me, I've come to see that I personally, I, I, I bear on my own body the marks of unbelief right here at the end of my fingers. Sometimes when I'm alone, not so much in front of people, I, I fear or I become nervous and I start to, I'm start to do this for consolation. I'm, I'm con it's almost like sucking my thumb, so infantile. And yet that's how I respond sometimes. I'm seeking consolation somewhere outside of God. <clears throat> or sometimes I will defend myself or become competitive with, with others. I, I saw this over Christmas break in myself, because I find consolation in the opinions of others instead of God. I'm taking refuge not in God who offers me a consolation that will always cheer my soul. In that moment, I'm defecting from God. And so are you when we act in unbelief and try to, try to create and fashion a consolation for ourselves. 
I say defect because we are talking here about a God who was a lover of this man's soul and by implication, our souls. Verse 18 says that it was the steadfast love of God that held him up. But when we seek consolation elsewhere, we are only taking refuge in a counterfeit. And more than that, we are defecting from the lover of our souls. James 4 calls this spiritual adultery. So believing in His love then is our great need. We, we defect in that little subtle moment. We, we defect, we, we turn away because we don't believe this man's testimony. We don't believe it. We don't believe that God will be to us as He was to Him. We don't believe His love is yet now still steadfast to us. That's great for you. I don't believe it for me. That's essentially what we're saying. And so when evil days come, we we, we can only see evil. We, we, We can no longer see the God who is bounding it and ordering it for our good. We can only see the sharp end of the scalpel. And we begin to shrink away. We withdraw from Him. We withdraw from the only one in the universe who is working to give us what we truly need. The only one who can truly console us. The only one who, who, who is for us so much that He wants to give us this, this confident assurance that transcends every circumstance. So this is the question put in two ways. How do I know that His love will truly be steadfast for me? Tomorrow or in five minutes? After all, he's taking me through some pretty hard stuff, and people are so evil. You should hear some of the stuff people have done to me. uh, I get the love part steadfast. Or, how do I know his love will be steadfast for me? After all, I am a great sinner. Sometimes I can't even look at myself in the mirror. Tomorrow, when I try and I fail... How do I know his, his love will be steadfast then? Really? For, for me? How do I know? Well, this leads us to the third point. In Christ, the steadfast love of God for Christ is proclaimed and showered to us. In Christ, the steadfast love of God for Christ is proclaimed and showered to us. I said before that the the implication of the psalmist's words in verses 16 through 23 is this, just as God has been to me, so will he be to you. So in order to understand the, the full weight of this and to take full confidence in this, we have to understand who is speaking. And I and I think you know who is speaking. It is the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who first experienced this psalm. He was framed unjustly, verse 20, by wicked rulers. They banded together against his life, the only perfectly righteous man, verse 21. And they condemned him, the only perfectly innocent man, to death. He was arrested and tried by night as though God would not see. When he cried, who rises up for me against the wicked? The sound in the Garden of Gethsemane was utter silence. Utter silence. He was left alone by the Father to take upon Himself all the rebuke and all the wrath that we deserved. He was left alone. He heard all that dreadful silence so that you never would. He was crushed by wicked rulers who mocked Him and stood over Him, arrogant and proud. But God was not allied with Him. How could He be? How could He be allied with the wicked? Because by crushing his own son, God caused the greatest act of evil to abound to the greatest good, the salvation of the world. He was placed in the pit that we spent all our lives digging for ourselves so that we would never go there. They put him in a tomb. And if God had not been his help, he would have lived in the land of silence. Verse 17. But, verse 15, justice returned to this righteous one. God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. The Lord did not abandon his heritage. The steadfast love of the Lord raised him up. 
Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were united to this Son, to this Jesus. You were united to Him by the Holy Spirit, and that means you are inseparably linked to Him right now. Inseparably. You are in Him. You stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. You are now, because of Christ, the righteous of this psalm. Not because of what you have done, because of Christ. Therefore, the Lord will not forsake you because of Christ. He will no less abandon you as He did His own Son. He will not leave you to the land of silence because He went there for you. Because He was condemned to death, you now have a stronghold. You now have a strong refuge in God. And now He reigns from heaven, King over all. He is in heaven, but He is close by His Spirit. He is an active King. Very active. He is in the details. He is in the details of your life. He is constantly by His Spirit providing you the consolation that you need every moment. Even when you sleep, He's providing you what you need. Think of the risen Jesus standing, not sitting at His throne, standing at His throne when Stephen was being stoned in the book of Acts. Standing, giving Stephen exactly what he needed in that moment. Not just to endure that moment, but to shine in that moment. To actually give God glory in that moment. That's what we're talking about here. That's what God is out to give you, Christian. And He is at work every moment of your life to give you that confident assurance. Even in the face of unspeakable evil. I know that I, I, I'm speaking here a little bit above my experience, a little bit above my pay grade. Okay, it's still true. It's still true. So He is to you now. He will be this way. He will be this way in five minutes for you. He will be this way in two hours. He will be this way tomorrow for you. He will never abandon you. He will always provide you what you need until the very end. The cross is your proof. The cross is your proof. This unbreakable, steadfast love for you that will hold you up. Christian, you exist in an unbreakable web of strong, steadfast love. And there is within us, I know there is within me, and it is within you. Something old and primal that it shrinks back from this love. It's the faint echo of Adam and Eve's shame and it's the residual shame from our own sin. And it's our pride. We're so proud and our, our pride recoils at love that is given so freely, so lavishly, so, so sacrificially, so complete. Love that's so aggressive, so... So, so violent, so jealous. Something in us recoils from that. And yet, recoil as we might, God is still calling. He's still calling you. He's still wooing you with His love. I want to read for you perhaps the, the greatest poem the English language has ever known um, by its greatest poet in my opinion, my limited opinion, George Herbert. The poem is called Love Number Three. The setting is a great hall set for a great feast. Picture this in a great manner. And the setting is also the human heart, the soul. Herbert writes, Love, referring to God, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, 
Ah, my dear, speaking to God, addressing God as my dear. Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, echoing and reversing the sarcasm of this psalm. Who made the eyes but I? I cannot look on thee. Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And you know not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, th- th- then I will serve. I, meaning I, I'll serve at the table. Uh, you, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. <laughs> Lovely. In a minute, we're going to approach the Lord's table and we will sit and eat. You and I will inevitably consider our sins, the ways that we've marred our eyes, our ungratefulness, all the ways that we are but dust. But then take the eyes of your heart and fix them on Christ. Fix them on love. Remember Christ. Remember that He bore the blame for you in love. Remember the words that we just sang in that wonderful hymn, It is well with my soul. We, we just sang. Have you ever thought this way about your sin? We just sang, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. <laughs> what? Do you ever think that way when you think about your sin? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but in whole has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul. So when you think of your sin in a moment, then think of Christ. And I I hope you come to that point where you say, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought about my sin. And then you might be tempted to make a resolution or two to do better. But first, as the as the head butler here, I say, please, just on behalf of our host, please, just sit and eat. <laughs> no need to serve just yet. Just sit and eat. Enjoy the feast. Enjoy the feast placed before you, this feast of love, this feast of Christ. Feast upon Christ. Feast upon the love that has been shown to you and will be shown to you in five minutes, and tomorrow, and the next day, until the very end. Remember His love for you. And then Scripture calls us as we take communion to remember the body. We, we need each other in this business of, of believing the steadfast love of the Lord. You have been given the church as a means to believe. You need other people for this, and other people need you. We're commanded in Scripture to consider the body as we take communion. So I ask you, to, to enough with resolutions to do better right now, but consider the body. Consider who you might go to, who you might move towards in love to encourage them, to, to draw them to the, the steadfast love of the Savior. And who might you move towards who can, who can pull you along? Who can fill your faith? Who can fill the, the sails of, of your faith? Who might God use for that purpose in this body? Consider the body as you take communion. Consider the body of Christ. And if you have not trusted in Christ, I must say, vindication does not await you. Only justice. Trust Christ. Trust Him. Trust Him. And and then you too will be assured again that His promise to never abandon you is true and that He is with you and that He is and will provide for you every moment until the moment we see Him face to face. The lover of your souls knows just the consolation your soul needs. He will do it. And may He get great glory in us as He provides it. Let me pray.
Father, I, I end where I began. Preach this sermon to my heart. Continue preaching Your Word to all of our hearts. As we, as we come to You in communion, continue preaching to us, Holy Spirit, as we feast upon You, Lord Jesus. Great is Your love to us. Praise Your name. Praise Your name. Praise Your name and I pray as You provide, be glorified in us. The one who provides gets the glory. So I pray, provide, provide lavishly according to Your steadfast love. Provide for Your people. Provide right now and later today and tomorrow that, that particular consolation that that sister or that brother needs. Provide not just, not just endurance, but provide this, this strong, confident assurance. Cause this, cause this little body of believers, cause us all to shine to shine as we enjoy You as You provide for us. Please do this and be glorified as You do, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.